Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roshi Ningle. And of course, if this is your first time listening or you just recently started putting us in your ears, thanks so much for that. You can send voice notes to us on Instagram if you like. Uh, we're at IT Women's Podcast. And you can also send us old school messages to our email, thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. And do let us know what you think about this episode or about anything you'd like us to cover in the future. We'd love to hear from you. Now, in this episode, we are looking at how the female body drove 200 million years of human evolution. This is a big but very entertaining topic. So she doesn't breastfeed because she does not yet have breasts. What she does do, however, is make milk. She doesn't even have nipples yet, dude. She's just secreting this stuff off the bottom of her abdomen, and the little pups are slurping it up out of her fur, which is exactly as gross as you think it is, and is also what the duck-billed platypus is still freaking doing out there in Australia. They're just, when you know, their little beaks, their weird alien beaks, they're yeah. just slurping milk off of their mama's tummy through these hairy milk patches. And the thing that really changes there in our evolutionary past, long before we have nipples, long before we have the pendulous fatty things that are hanging off our chest wall for some reason, right, is that we're making milk, which is a different way of providing um, not just nutrition, not just water, but also a kind of immunological safety net. That was Kat Bohannon there, author, academic and poet. And I can't wait to bring that conversation with her to you. She's such a unique thinker and communicator. Really fascinating. But before we get to that, there's a story that caught our eyes this week that there's a report from the Council of Europe published on Monday, which showed that there are serious shortcomings in how women and children are protected or not protected from violence in Ireland and how urgent improvement in legislation is needed. And of course, we know that because we talk about aspects of that on the podcast all the time. But it's really important to have a report that has studied it and and to read its findings. Kitty Holland wrote about it for the Irish Times this week. The report is from the Council's group of experts on violence against women. They're known as Grievio. And it says that urgent improvement is needed in legislation, the courts, data collection and schools to ensure that women and children are protected. And of course, the timing of all this is very interesting, given that it's come just days after the conviction of Yosef Pushka for the murder of Ashling Murphy in January 2022. The report is 117 pages long. And as Kitty reports, it urges the introduction of a review mechanism of all gender-based killings of women to prevent further deaths, keep women safe and hold all actors and agency involved in their cases to account. This is Grievio's first evaluation of Ireland since ratification of the Istanbul Convention on Combating Violence Against Women in March 2019 and it draws on findings from a five-day visit in February when the group met government, frontline services and other experts. So it's based on their findings during that visit. 
Grievio welcomed the third national strategy on domestic, sexual and gender-based violence, which was adopted in June last year. The establishment by Gardaí of protective services units in each division and important legislative developments, including criminalising female genital mutilation, coercive control and forced marriage and adopting a definition of rape based on the lack of consent. However, the report raises concerns about what is happening to women and children who have experienced violence in the family law and criminal courts. Despite a legal requirement that family law judges take into account domestic violence when determining child custody and access, they and their court-appointed experts often fail to, including in cases in which the perpetrator has been convicted for acts of violence against the victim and or her children. Grievio observed insufficient training of judges on domestic violence, the report said, as well as the problematic use of the concept of parental alienation syndrome by experts with a view to minimising or ignoring the violence perpetrated. The report says it was equally concerning that mothers experiencing domestic abuse risked having their children removed into care as social workers and courts blamed them for being unable to protect them from violence. These concerns from Grievio um, are very similar to those uh, expressed in a National Women's Council and Department of Justice report published last May. That report said that in the criminal courts, victims who testify report experiencing secondary victimisation, says Grievio. Victims have reported feeling the severity of the violence was being dismissed and or questioned by those in the criminal justice system, including judges. Reports also point to instances of negative attitudes of judges towards certain vulnerable groups, such as Roma and Irish traveller women. The report noted application of lenient sentences in cases of domestic violence and sexual violence and rape, including the tendency of courts to rely on suspended or conditional sentences, which we know is so common. Concerns about an ineffective judicial response to domestic violence, sexual violence, rape, stalking, digital violence, sexual harassment, FGM and forced marriage must be urgently addressed, it said. It also had listed so many other things, including something that hasn't been um, highlighted a lot, and actually we've never spoken about it, but the legal obligation on therapists and support services to share a rape or assault victim's therapy and counselling notes with the courts when requested by defence or prosecution may discourage victims seeking support and these organisations may paradoxically and unintentionally contribute elements that can be used by the defence to discredit victims and the report says that this should be removed without delay so that idea that you go um, to a therapist after you've been sexually assaulted and what you say there can be actually used in court against you it just seems absolutely wrong it also talks about insufficient domestic violence refuge beds as well there's so much in that report and hope Hopefully notice will be taken of it because these are things campaigners and survivors have been pointing to for a long time. So we can only hope that the improvements the report calls for will be made. On a totally different subject, we want to congratulate Emma Hayes, who has been appointed as the new coach of the USA women's national team. She was the Chelsea manager, but she's going to leave her current role at the end of the season and has agreed a deal which makes her the world's highest paid female coach. She says it's a huge honour to be given the opportunity to coach the most incredible team in world football history, Hayes said. So it's good to see what's happening in women's football and hopefully that will only continue. Now, I know a doorstopper of a book that delves into how the female body drove 200 million years of human evolution might sound a bit of an ordeal or a bit like it's going to be heavy going. And perhaps in the hands of a different author, it might have been hard to wade through. But luckily, Kat Bohannon is smart, 
funny and has an incredible ability to make jokes even when she is deep diving into subjects such as how did wet nurses drive civilization? Are women always the weaker sex? Is sexism useful for evolution? And are our bodies at war with our babies? In her first book, Eve, Kat Bohannon answers questions that she says scientists should have been addressing for decades. She is boundlessly curious and she is a great and sharp wit. And she's written this sweeping revision of human history, which has had rave reviews in The Guardian and The New York Times. The book is being spoken of as an urgent and necessary corrective for a world that has focused primarily on the male body for far too long. What she has to say is fascinating and some of her findings are going to completely change what you think you know about evolution and why us humans have become such a successful and dominant species and what women's bodies have had to do with all of that. I began by asking Kat Bohannon, author, poet, academic, what gave her the idea for the book in the first place. Well, you know, as um, a biologically female person with this very femme body, thanks, mom, you know, um, that I often have to strap up with elaborate industrial size things, right, you know, to haul it up my chest wall to be social, really. Um, it's, it's, it's like there are lots of triggering moments. I think that's what we call it in my generation, you know, across my lifespan. Um, but one of the key moments, actually, was when I was drinking. At Columbia, as you do, we spend far too much time about that. Sorry for anyone who is triggered by that. Um, so I was out one night uh, in this unfinished neuroscience lab. Actually, we were building a whole new building at Columbia. A lot of money came in from the money people, and we were making new labs, and we love it when that happens. And so I and a bunch of neuroscience postdocs were passing around an actual bottle. I think it, I think it actually was Irish whiskey, come to think of it. So there you go. <laughs> um, and we were talking about our days, and a dear friend of mine who was a neuroscientist, a postdoc in a Nobel laureate's lab, actually, and I can't name him for obvious reasons, as you'll see, uh, had to present his work that day. He had to do that thing that we do in a lot of different jobs where we go to our bosses and we present our work for the last few months and we say, look at all of these beautiful, sexy graphs and or proof that I have worked, please don't fire me. <laughs> right? That's just a regular flaming hoop we have to jump through. So he did this. And the thing is, is that he was trying to chase down this question about neurological function in rats. And he actually happened to be collaborating with a lab that had both a lot of male and a lot of female rats available for the study. So he actually, which turned out to be unusual, as I learned, a sex balance. He had that sex balance in his subject pool. And he presented it to his PI, that means principal investigator, his boss, the Nobel, that guy. <laughs> Very intimidating. And he said, look, okay, okay, take a deep breath. The question we were looking for, not very interesting. Not very interesting. It turned out the signal wasn't so strong, but the sex differences here were huge. That was a massive, massive signal in the data. Look at my beautiful, sexy graph. Please don't fire me, but also please let me do this instead. And the Nobel laureate, he leaned back in his chair and he said, you know, I think it's an artifact. Now, what that means in statistics is that you've either done the experiment wrong or something about how you're analyzing your data produced this signal that isn't real. It's like a ghost, you know, like and so he's like, go do it again. And my friend, the postdoc said, I thought you might say that. Did it three times. Ha ha. Uh -huh. Sexy data. Look at that. Look at my margins of error. They're so pretty. Again, please don't fire me, but let's do this thing. And so the Nobel laureate, again, he leans back in his chair and says, you know, I see what you're saying, but I just don't think it's that interesting. I think we should chase down our original question. And so, of course, then my friend is drinking fairly heavily with me at this night because this means that this thing that he thinks is the most important thing to chase down in the science 
is going to be something he has to do as like a side hustle, like a like a thing that you're not doing as your main, right? Because his boss wants him to not look at that. And this is the first moment in my career that I actually learned about the male norm in biology, that we're primarily studying males. It's starting to change. There is good news on the horizon. But unfortunately, for a very long time, man, in biology, we were just... It was just dicks all the way down. We were just studying males, whether we're talking about rodents or dogs or pigs or non-human primates. And yes, humans, we were primarily studying males because that's how we controlled for the menstrual cycle. That's how we controlled for the weird hormonal wackadoo that is having estrus when you're a female. And one way to make your science um, cleaner to control for your confounds is to just not study females at all which to you and I and everyone else with two X chromosomes sounds a little nuts and possibly, I don't know, unethical. Uh, That's just how it's been done for decades. And it's only just now starting to change. So that was one of you, as you call it, the triggers. And and then, I mean, this is a big Mm -hmm. question, but what did you start to discover about how um, the omission of women's bodies from medical research has an impact? Like, what does that actually mean? And why is it important? Because that book is really, I mean, it's only part of it. There's lots of things in this book, but it's one very important part. What does it mean that, that we don't look at females? Well, this is the central moral imperative, of course. This is the why it must be done, not just that it would be fun to do or interesting or intellectually stimulating or give you lots of good jokes, as I tend to do, Um, but specifically because, oh my God, it must reduce suffering if we can correct for this major problem, yeah? Um, So in that case, the moral imperative is such, uh, it turns out that having a biologically female body can sometimes be massively impactful for how you metabolize drugs. It depends on the drug, and we're only just now figuring out when that matters and when it doesn't. But the thing is, is that even if it turns out not to matter most of the time, if the other minority of times it produces death and massive suffering, it turns out that actually you really need to pay attention to those minority of times, right? And we're still figuring that out. So, for example, your liver does not have a pronoun. Pronouns are things that we do as human beings, which are not at all unusual to do, and they are social, and it's stuff our brain does, and that's all cool, right? We are diverse creatures, and so your liver doesn't have a pronoun, but it does have a biological sex. For example, opioid drugs. These are a major class of pain relievers, okay? Uh, You may have heard of the opioid crisis, particularly in the U.S., but not only. Right, so these are prescription pain reliever drugs. They tend to be incredibly uh, addictive, unfortunately, but The point here is that if you are a person with a biologically female liver, which is where these drugs are primarily metabolized, it turns out you're going to need different dosing and a different sort of pattern of care if you are taking these drugs to experience pain relief. For example, you may need a little more of it to experience the same subjective level of pain relief as a male, and not simply because your body might be smaller. It's not that the guys are big, as it were but rather that your liver is doing stuff differently. Even a male the exact same mass as you is metabolizing these drugs a little bit differently. He's not going to need quite as much of it to achieve that same level of pain relief and how it leaves the body, the slope at which both the pain relief and the side effects actually leave the body will likewise be different, which unfortunately means that females are slightly differently vulnerable to certain kinds of addiction patterns when it comes to opioid drugs. And those patterns again change 
when we pass menopause, right? Because how our bodies are doing things actually tends to change a little bit over the course of our lifespan. However, when we pass menopause, that doesn't mean suddenly we're males and we're just doing whatever males do. Actually, we're just slightly different biological females. Mm. So getting a better sense of how that's all working is going to relieve pain and suffering, literal pain and suffering, for all different kinds of women at all different ages. And we should have known that before they went on the damn market. Yes, exactly. And so do you feel, if we're going to put a a blame for this, are we blaming sexism purely or is there a whole load of other reasons why this is the case? (sighs) Again, (laughs) you're doing a deep breath. There are many things in my life that tell me, oh, actually, we're not going to say there isn't sexism. (laughs) Hi, ladies. Yeah, there's sexism. It turns out it's real. (laughs) But in this case, actually, it's not simply. In this case, it's not only. All right. In this case, it's that it's also a way in which there is this unspoken agreement in biology to control for the messiness of what it is to be biologically female as a mammal, that you have this estrous cycle. So you think about your sex hormones. And so you're going to think about maybe if you have them, your ovaries, maybe a uterus, maybe your vag, wherever your brain goes, your boobs, right? If you have all of these traits in your body. But that isn't the only place that you have sex hormone receptors. It's actually true that you have sex hormone receptors in nearly every tissue in your body, as do biological males, as do intersex people, okay? So what that means is there's more than one reason that your digestive system might get a little unfortunate when you have PMS, okay? It's not simply that you're moody. The reason, in fact, literally how you go to the bathroom might um, shift. We won't get into the details right now. (laughs) I think we all know know what you're saying. Right around, yeah, well, though, you know what? However, biological males don't know that. They don't know why the hell we're going to the bathroom. They think it's only about the tampons. Turns out it's not, right? And that's because your enteric nervous system and all of the blood vessels that surround your digestive system are responding to changes in hormone patterns. And we're just starting in the sciences to map how that's working and why that is. And why it is, for example, people who go on birth control pills might shift that pattern. And for those of us who suffer more from PMS uh, might have relief thereby. Right. Because it's not just about not getting pregnant. It's actually about having better control over how our bodies are working over the course of our lifespan. Mm. Now, this book is is a very big book. The footnotes alone are like (laughs) are like a massive, you know, a big part of it. So the research that has gone into this, and I can totally understand how it took you 10 years to write it. And I just want to say, well done. You're amazing. But it does say to how the female body drove 200 million years of human evolution. And you start off with this little creature called Morgie who was around mm-hmm. during the dinosaurs and she's probably oh, yeah. the, the first breastfeeder. So what did Morgie teach you about how women evolved? So thankfully, I didn't even have to nickname her because the Smithsonian <laughs> in Washington, D.C. did that for me. Her full name is Morgana Kadan. She's a genus, not a species. So there's lots of different kinds, just like there are lots of different kinds of canids. Some are wolves, some are your pets, right? But they're all canids. Okay, so there are lots of different kinds of morgi, as it were. But what she is, is what I call an exemplar. She's probably not our direct ancestor, but a lot like her, right? Because we don't just have one Eve. 
We have millions, but we have a few key ones, a few key moments in our evolutionary past and a few key associated Edens, their ecological context, that mark where our bodies start to change, where we start to become where we are on the taxonomic tree. And she's the moment we're really starting to become mammals. And one of the key things that happens in mammals is lactation. So she doesn't breastfeed because she does not yet have breasts. What she does do, however, is make milk. She doesn't even have nipples yet, dude. She's just secreting this stuff off the bottom of her abdomen, and the little pups are slurping it up out of her fur, which is exactly as gross as you think it is, and is also what the duck-billed platypus is still freaking doing out there in Australia. They're just, when you know, their little beaks, their weird alien beaks, they're yeah. just slurping milk off of their mama's tummy through these hairy milk patches. And the thing that really changes there in our evolutionary past, long before we have nipples, long before we have these pendulous fatty things that are hanging off our chest wall for some reason, right, is that we're making milk, which is a different way of providing um, not just nutrition, not just water, but also a kind of immunological safety net for our offspring. Right? So what Morgie's really doing is not just controlling how her newborns are getting their water, right? Because if you get it from mama's abdomen instead of a local pond, you're going to have fewer bacteria. You're going to have fewer pathogens, fewer freaking eggs for worms. And when you're a newborn, that really matters, it turns out. So it's controlling for that. But it's also setting up that microbiome in its guts. It's also setting up its own actual immune system because immune cells are being passed from that maternal body into the offspring's body. And that's a whole new way of going about starting a life. Mm. And that's something that mammals specifically start to do. Yes, when we're weird little squirrely weasel beasts under the feet of dinosaurs. <laughs> Um, and speaking of making life, um, I, I was fascinated reading your book to sort of think about how, even though there's billions of us on the planet, we're actually not really that well set up to make babies. And it's quite a perilous, dangerous activity uh, that we're not necessarily oh dear Lord, yes. brilliantly designed for. Well, I have two uh, children. I think you have two as well. Um, I do. Would you describe pregnancy as a dance between what the mother's body needs and what her hungry offspring need, which each accommodation skirting just on the edge of killing one or both of them, which is not really what you want to hear yes. in your antenatal class, really, about the potential of your pregnancy. You know, <laughs> um, there are many reasons that OBs don't tell you everything. OK, because it's not their job to scare the bejesus out of you. All right. Because the majority of what we call birth complications are um, not necessarily things that will kill you. And because modern medicine is freaking awesome, you know, most of us are going to survive this, those of us who have access to it. Remember, of course, that many, many people in the world who become pregnant do not have access at all. And it is much more dangerous, not simply in the moment they give birth. It's not just about midwifery, right? But actually in the long prenatal period leading up to it, which greatly determines whether or not you're gonna die when you actually try to birth this thing. So I have lots of respect for all the reasons you might not want to cover all the risks in the moment you're pregnant, because let's just say you're already a little bit nervous. Yeah. Now, I have been pregnant uh, many times, unfortunately. I have given birth to live babies twice, and I love them very much. I am very happy to never do that again. Let's just That's my overall impression of the entire process. I have respect for the people who enjoyed it. God bless them. They are a little bit more like unicorns, let's admit. And they always want to tell us about their really positive experiences, don't they? 
and I don't know why they do. You know, maybe they just don't realize how painful it is for the rest of us to smile and nod at them with their happy birth stories. Moving on. But the funny thing is about those birth complications, that word we use, complications, is how deeply normal they are. Remember that just because something happens to a lot of people doesn't mean it's okay. All right. So from a biological perspective, looking outside of our species, the human pregnancy and birth and postpartum recovery is longer and harder and more prone to crippling and dangerous and sometimes deadly complications than it is for most other primates. Well, except for the squirrel monkey, and we do feel badly for her. But it's also bad for most other mammals. We actually suck at this, ladies. This is not actually a good situation at all. All. And so if you take that perspective, if you pull that camera back and you look at what's happening in lots of primate bodies, if you look at birth in general across mammals, you begin to understand, oh, we are actually sort of uniquely vulnerable to these things we call complications, that that's actually just part of how we do it. And the central reason we're alive at all, and I don't just mean you and I who've given birth, but I mean our freaking species, is that we invented gynecology. Not just 200 years ago, okay, 3.2 million Lucy, the Australopithecine, furry little bitch, she had, and it's appropriate to call her that because, you know, sometimes another species, she had a midwife, okay, and she was doing everything she could to survive. Yeah. I mean, that's what you say. You say it wasn't stone tools or fire. It's not the internet or any of these other things. The reason we managed to survive mm -hmm. was these original women who were helping each other to, to birth and to, to to make it a success and for the babies not to die because of their our pelvises or our their the big heads of the babies and all that kind of which is incredible, mm -hmm. which is something I've never thought of before. But mm -hmm. you have dug dug into well, that. I'm guessing part of the reason so many of us, not just you, right? Don't be hard on yourself. That's most of us. Haven't heard that story isn't just sexism, although also sexism, yes. We can just go ahead and name what things are sometimes, right? It's, it's just that we have this story we tell ourselves about the female body, that it's destiny. We say this in the sciences. We say this in culture. It's destiny is to give birth so gently and warmly and, and supportively and then raise that fuzzy little baby, whatever species it may be, that that is what it is to be female. And if you understand that for mammals especially, actually this process is quite dangerous. Actually, this process is quite complicated. And that yes, there is that biological imperative as it were, but to call that a destiny, to call that an ultimate goal is actually a little bit crappy well, that changes the story of how we understand our bodies, mm. doesn't it? It's more like our bodies are bracing for impact, okay? Our bodies are doing that thing that you do in a drill where you hide under a desk and hope a ceiling isn't about to fall on you, except it's our whole bodies all the time. Mm. That's actually a big driver for sex differences. Not, again, not because it's our destiny to give birth, but because it's so difficult to do so as the species and as the kingdom, as, as the uh, family that we are we have adaptations to help us survive it. Mm. Because um, this brings in like the situation in America at the moment with Roe being overturned and we had our own very um, difficult in some ways debate around abortion and reproductive rights five years ago when it became legal in, in Ireland. I'm not sure if you're aware of that, but you know, when you describe... Oh, I do. Yeah, when you describe about that kind of dangerousness of pregnancy and it's something that, you know, 
you know, it's people just don't really get their heads around how much it is a risk to, rather than not just being your destiny, getting pregnant is a something that could end really badly for a woman. And I think that was a really important part of the conversation around abortion. I mean, is that something that's been discussed in America at all in relation to the current issues? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I wish more so. Now, my mother is uh, Irish Catholic, profoundly Irish, because you see, we are inbred. Uh, When they came over to New York, of course, Irish Catholics marrying other Irish Catholics. And so I am far more Irish genetically than probably in principle I should be. I am the 11-toed wonder, as it were, of of Irishness based in New York. And um, she, of course, like many New York Catholics, is more of a cafeteria Catholic. She kind of picks what works for her and then leaves the rest off her (laughs) Would you like to know what we call them? We call it a bouncy, a yeah. bouncy castle Catholic because oh, yeah. that's in reference to when people get their make their Holy Communion. You hire a bouncy castle, yeah. but all the rest of the time you're not really oh, bothered okay. with the, the church. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Now, I at this point am an atheist, but of course um, I went all the way through catechism. I, In fact, in fact, a priest had me skip two years ahead in catechism, um, like I did in regular school. So it's not just that I know God, we good, all right? But... <laughs> But so nonetheless, I have that Catholic background. So, of course, I followed closely when Ireland was determining the uh, fate of its biological females and what should and shouldn't be protected in the law. And I was very happy to see some of those outcomes, because likewise, in the U.S., we don't um, we don't talk much about the health risks. You know, it's always in an apologetic sort of moment where we're like, oh, to save the life of the mother, we should, we must. And it's like somebody's waving a cross above your head and some incense or something in this moment of the debate, right? And no, you know, setting all your frankincense and myrrh aside, actually, there is no moment in a human pregnancy where you are truly safe. Now, Again, let me remind you, don't be terrified. Modern medicine is awesome. So we can actually overcome most of those things. It's just that a lot of what we call birth complications can come on really fast, actually. And it's really hard to fully predict a trajectory of such a thing. In other words, why so many people go in for all of those stupid blood tests and scans and meetings isn't just the monetizing of the birth process, you know what I mean? It's actually, and it's not just to keep the baby safe either, this future potential baby. It's to keep you safe as a pregnant person, okay? But we don't talk about that partially because we don't want to terrify people. Fair. But also because we downplay it. We absolutely downplay the inherent dangers of what it is to be pregnant the way we are. Um, why is it so dangerous? Because it's our destiny. That's why we don't play it as downplay it as well. Because we're... we're, we're... <sighs> I know, I know. And that single holy apathy. Stolic Catholic Church, of course, has something to do with how we tell the story of womanhood. Yes, it does. Mm. Yes, thank you, Holy Pope, but we see you. Let's change that story a little bit, okay? Okay? It's okay to change the story and still be sacred, all right? So, yeah, yeah, that is it. It's the idea that it's our destiny, and not just our destiny, but, my God, our duty, our responsibility, that's part of the story. And I think that can change as well. Because, you know, in our deeply social interconnected lives, as the social primates we actually are, every single one of us carries the community, whether or not we're having children, okay? Mm -hmm. Whether or not we are having children, we support the well-being of children. Whether or not we ourselves and our bodies are having children, we support one another. And sometimes the best choices are, in fact, to not have children at all. 
right? And the more we support those choices, the healthier our communities are actually going to be. And we say that as mothers, and I agree with you. I want to say, hell yeah, amen. I want to do one of those things they do in the gospel church, which I did a lot reading your book, actually. It's it's one of those books. (laughs) (laughs) Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Talk to me about the superpowers of women that you've discovered over the course of your research. One of them I didn't realise was a superpower, but I totally related to my my uh, sense of smell, especially when I was pregnant, actually. Mm-hmm. I couldn't, anything that was any uh, vaguely strong smell that other people couldn't smell, I could smell. And at other times I'm like that as well. But I never realised that was a female thing, particularly. Tell us about that and other superpowers. I can absolutely talk to you about your nose, um, <laughs> not your specific nose. Uh, it's it's lovely. It's more um, about your sense of olfaction, which is one of the most ancient perceptive sensory things that we have. We've had it since we were unicellular, the ability to smell chemical gradients and things getting further and farther away in a, in a soup. So the thing about the sense of smell is that two things are going on, right? One is that your nose is doing a thing, and two, your brain is doing a thing with that s- that signal and responding to it, not just determining what it is, but also having an emotional response. So part of why it's so alarming to have your sense of smell change if you're a pregnant person is that you're having two things happen. You may, and it's unclear actually, be able to better determine what scents are. In other words, a faint sense may seem stronger to you than it normally is. Yeah. And it's actually a little bit unclear in the science if that's something your nose is doing exactly. Like, is it better uh, capturing those scents in the air coming in through your nose and then transmitting that signal up to your brain? Or is it something the brain is doing? Most of us are now thinking it's something the brain is doing, actually. Because actually what you're having is not simply more attention to your olfactory signal, right? That you're it's weirdly intruding on your consciousness. I'm smelling this thing in a way you wouldn't normally think about but also you are emotionally responding in a way you wouldn't normally do it, right? That nausea signal, that repulsion, right? So it was actually very hard for me many of the times when I've been pregnant to go to a restaurant and sit anywhere near the damn bathroom. And it wasn't because of the terrible smells coming out of other people's bodies, but fair, 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 right? It was actually about that chemical cleaner smell. For me, it was about that potent industrial cleaner scent that I could no longer like emotionally tolerate that smell in a way that wouldn't normally bother me. So I had to sit closer to the door, not to the bathroom, but to the door. And that's what worked for me. And for everybody who's pregnant, it's a little bit different. Now, some of that is hormonal shifts in your body, but some of it also might be that actually there's a part of our brain that is built a little bit differently if we're female 
versus male. Now I say female versus male because we literally have no data on intersex people in this space. So there's my little flag for that. We just don't know for other people. But in the majority, in the majority of us who are strongly male, strongly female, female brains seem to be wired a little bit differently in that we have in our olfactory bulbs, this is the part of the brain that has to do with scent. The cells are denser, they're more tightly packed together than they are in a male typical bulb, right? So even though male brains are slightly larger, which just is because their bodies are slightly bigger, uh, same size guys, if he's the same height and mass as you, is probably gonna have the same size brain, okay? So you can just get rid of any of that, oh, he's smarter thing, it's just because his body's bigger. And what brains do largely is control bodies and all of that conscious thought stuff is like a later add-on to feature to what brains do. Right, so okay, so his olfactory bulb, for whatever reason, is slightly less densely packed which means that the signal doesn't distribute as quickly or as effectively as it does in a female olfactory bulb, which weirdly is a big part of why we can smell his farts faster than another guy. <laughs> so that's just a perk we never wanted, but we have. <laughs> and then going on from smelling, there's also extended color yeah. vision, uh, the longer mm -hmm. life expectancy than, than men, oh, better yeah. at endurance exercise. These are all things that you have discovered in terms of the sex differences. Like there's a lot, isn't there, in terms of extra bonus stuff? Oh, my goodness. So there are many, many ways in which female resilience and what you might want to call female advantage, female strength end up coming out of this new science. Now, this is really cutting edge stuff because we're catching up in sex differences, right? Which means a lot of this science isn't quite settled yet. Some of it is and some of it isn't, right? So that means in like 10 or 20 years, some of the things in this book are gonna turn out to be strongly important. And some of them are gonna, in the way that always science progresses, is gonna be less of a big deal, still present probably, who knows, but less of a big deal, right? So and even though this is a giant book, and don't worry, the last third or so are notes, and there's many jokes, so you can do this, <laughs> right? You know, that it's more of a starter package <laughs> on the brand new science that's happening right now. But it is true that there's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of female differences, some of which turn out to make our lives really crappy, as we've discussed now, and some of which turn out to make our lives kind of secretly awesome, which we don't often talk about. And one of the things that's a little bit of both, a little bit awesome and a little bit crap, is that female bodies across most mammals are better at not dying. We have what's called a longevity boost we tend to live longer than the males of our species. This isn't true in every species, but it's true in many, both in the wild and often in the lab too. And the fact that it's also true in many species in the lab means it's not just about behavior, man. It's not just about the boys doing dumb boy stuff and men doing even dumber man stuff later, right? It's not just about what you do in the world and how many risks you take. It seems to be something about something deeper, something about cellular repair, something about metabolism, something in the actual bric-a-brac of what it is to be alive and to be sexed, which we're only just now starting to figure out. But the thing that's really cool about that, of course, is that many, many human females tend to push off aging in interesting ways, right? It's that we, the slope at which we, um, decline, that's the biological term, I'm not socially fond of that word, thank you, but yes, um, tends to be a little bit different than it happens in the male, especially in our cardiovascular systems. It's weirdly costly and dangerous to have a heart if you are male, okay? And that starts actually from the birth. It seems to start even from the womb, but it's really kicking in in human beings around puberty. 
every year that you're biologically male is kind of differently harder on your heart and your arteries and even your peripheral vascular response than it is in females. And the more we figure out why that is, why having a so-called male heart is harder, more dangerous, just inherently more risky than having a female cardiovascular system, the better we're going to be able to treat not only people who have female bodies who have heart disease, but male bodies who do, because we're going to figure out the mechanisms driving that male vulnerability. We're going to reduce a lot of suffering. We're going to save a lot of lives just by studying the biology of sex differences. Now, you did mention the brain there and and women being wired differently. But, you know, there's Mm. this idea maybe that the male and female brain are different. But you did a lot of research into that and discovered that actually that's not true. There's there's not that much difference at all. But, But tell us about what differences there are and how similar they are as well. So the first important flag here is that a lot of this is new science. And there are only so many cadaver brains to go around, which means that your subject pool is reduced right? Um, Because sometimes what you literally need to do to understand what's happening in a brain is to either shove it in a blender or freeze it and make weirdly small slices with an actual deli slicer, by the way. I've been in these labs. They take frozen human brains and use a deli slicer on them and then analyze it. And personally, I just love that because I have a dark sense of humor and that's fine. Anyway, all deli slicers aside, what that means is that what I'm about to tell you is based on a smaller subject pool and the science is cutting edge and we're learning as we go. But what I found that was really interesting is that, yes, there are some very minor, statistically significant, but barely differences between the average female and the average male human brain, some of which can be traced to earlier mammals because we've ground up a lot more mouse brains, thank you, um, and sliced them too, but with much smaller deli slicers, like teeny tiny, like like almost like a tiny little, and they have them, and it's beautiful, and I've watched them do it. Anyway, they try not to slice their fingers. That's a problem if you're that scientist. Anyway, um, or and the, so that carries on. That carries on up the mammalian chain. There are some sex differences there, but they're so small, and they're interestingly increasingly small once you get into the human species. And so what you end up with quite often is what's called a sex mosaicism. So remember that the brain is made up of a lot of different stuff, a lot of different regions, okay? So that means that in one area of the brain, you may have a difference in ratios of uh, white matter. You may have a difference in myelination. But in the exact same brain in a different region, you may have the opposite pattern. Right, So you may have a more female typical zone in a brain, and then in another zone in that same brain, a more male typical zone. So it's more of a mosaicism, okay? The central way you're able to determine, in fact, in any given brain whether or not it's biologically female is to shove it in a blender and sluice it down and sequence the DNA. And you're going to have to do that with multiple cells because you see in females like me who have given birth to biological males, some of his cells may well have crossed through the placenta and migrated the hell up into her brain and just set up shop there, just doing something. We don't know what the hell they are. And the reason we know that is because we did puree. We scientists, I mean, not me specifically a number of human brains and sequenced the DNA and found Y chromosomes, okay, from female bodies. And why was that? Well, that was because she had given birth to a male and it somehow crossed the placenta and now we have chimerism, 
okay? So I don't know what my sun cells are doing up in my brain. I presume they're there. Maybe that's why I'm even weirder than I was before. I don't know. But what it does mean is that even at that moment when you're sequencing the DNA and you think you're going to have a confidence about saying this is a so-called female brain, it's still going to be complicated depending on whether or not she gave birth to a male. So I found that really cool. And personally, of course, as a female who identifies as a woman, uh, rather liberating. Mm. And speaking of liberating, because you said you've said that you found the whole writing of this book liberating, especially in terms of your own body. So tell me about the importance of what you call your fat ass, because I'm not going to say you have a fat oh, ass. Oh, God, apparently my fat ass is one of the most important things in the world. Not specifically mine, but maybe, maybe, maybe mine. Right. Um, <laughs> it turns out that gluteal femoral fat. So that's the fat on your butt and your upper thighs and your hips. That thing we keep staring at in the mirror like it's so important and wondering if it's fitting well in those blue jeans, yeah? That stuff. It turns out that it is in fact a barely visible part of your fat organ system. It's like you're seeing a little bit of your liver just under your skin. It's not just where you keep your cake, okay? It's not just where those biscuits and puddings go, although me too, and I love that actually. Me and baked goods were tight, yeah? It's actually an, a deeply embedded part of your endocrine system. And yes, your digestive system and metabolic system, but also your immune system. It's building actual immune cells in there and hormonal signaling is just, it's hard to divorce that part of your body from all of the rest of your body. It's so goddamn important, okay? And what's interesting about it is not, in females especially, is not just that it's important like all your fat, right? Which changes, of course, what you see in the mirror when you see one or another bump, right? It's that in females, it seems to be storing stuff that is more important for baby making and, uh, and well, their eyes and brains, that is, uh, than otherwise. So it's storing these specially formed uh, fatty acids, LCPUFAs, think fish oil, think omega-3, okay? Our bodies are bad at making this from uh, different parts and stitching it together. It's like we have to get most of it from our diet and just store it as is. We can make some of it, it seems, but just not a lot. And we start building that up all the way from childhood. We be biological females. And it's metabolically protected. So that's what it means, first place to gain, last place to lose. The reason it's so hard to shrink that particular stuff down is actually a hormonal signal because in the third trimester of pregnancy, if you go through such an ill-advised process, all right, that third semester of pregnancy is when it starts mass dumping out of your butt directly into that baby body. Like it's got just a direct hoovering, slurping it up. And then again, in the first few months of breastfeeding, when it seems to be, uh, it's like the floodgates opened and suddenly your ass is turning into baby directly. Yeah, which is both gross and horrifying to think about, but also true, also true that those special fatty acids seem particularly good for building baby brains and for building baby retinas. You, in fact, are storing up ass fat, not because it's your destiny to make a baby, but just in case, because it turns out that our very hungry, complicated brains need special stuff to build. And that is the fat that's often removed during lip liposuction. Is that fair to say? Yes, we are uh, uniquely <laughs> anxious about it in our cultures. Not all human cultures, thank you very much, but ours, yours and mine and much in the so-called West, but also over in Asia as well. The rate of liposuction on 
our asses is not um, small. And unfortunately, it is the case that at this point, literally no one has done any sort of study to determine if uh, hoovering some of this stuff out before we have a baby makes any difference. Mm. And that is something we should probably start figuring out. There are a number of labs that are starting to think about doing those studies. Uh, as I write in the book, you'll see I tried myself. I wasn't able to get it off the ground because I didn't have the right kind of freezers <laughs> in my department at Columbia or the, the departments I was collaborating with. So, you know, science doesn't just happen, people, <laughs> okay? Many things go into doing a study, but hopefully someone will figure this out soon. But the good news... Before, again, you start feeling incredibly nervous, right? All of you with your anxiety disorders. Hey, I see you, <laughs> right? Is that um, the body has many fail-safes. So it may be true that even though this is a long-evolved thing, we don't know to what degree it matters yet. We're going to figure that out. There may be some fail-safes to make it okay, right? But um, at the very least, we should start determining how okay it might be and stop treating so many features of women's bodies as something that's cosmetic and there to, um, what's the word? Please? We are not simply here to please. No, we are not. We're not an adornment or a decoration or some kind of titillation. Mm -mm. Unfortunately, that's been the kind of narrative that we've had to endure. Um, how mm -hmm. do you think female bodies are going to evolve further? Because that's the kind of thing that you think about. For example, even though clearly from what you've said, it's very ill-advisable to get pregnant. But if people do, what about, the, <laughs> what about the fertility window expanding and women having babies later in life? What are your thoughts in, on that? Well, I had babies later in life. I had um, my son was born when I was 39 and my daughter was born when I was 41. I'm 44 now. So I have a three and a five year old. And uh, yes, someone is being paid to watch them right now, which is why I get to talk to you at this time of day. Uh, this is a collaborative process. When we say it takes a village, we mean that, right? So the interesting thing about giving birth uh, later in life, and I may be kidding myself, but I don't think it's that much later, damn it. But, you know, a bit, a bit, thank you, um, is that, well, we may not have evolved under the conditions in which this were the norm. It may be the case because it's so hard to give birth the way we do that it's just always going to be a bit harder. But the thing to remember about the human species is that we, what we're known for is our behavioral workarounds. What we're known for is doing stuff that overcomes our body's inherent limitations because our bodies evolve more slowly than our behavior. Okay? That's part, of course, of why, when you want to know what it is we may have done in the past, the best place to look first is the body, right? Because whatever you see out in the world right now may or may not have been normal in our deep past, as I talk about in the last chapter of the book, which I call love, which is and isn't a misnomer, but you'll see when you read people, right? So it's also true, however, that when we give birth later, there are inherent challenges, inherent uh, higher rates of complication. That doesn't mean it should be thought of as an unnatural thing, however, because of course, if what is most natural to us as a species is finding clever workarounds for our, our body's inherent limitations, then that is of course then the most natural thing we could possibly do, finding those workarounds, improving our medicine, improving our models in science, and then liberating people to make choices in their lives they may not have been able to do 10, 50, 100 years ago. Mm. Yeah? So um, I don't think of IVF, in vitro fertilization, as something which is an unnatural add-on to our behavior, 
but simply an extension of an already very natural behavior our species has, which is finding ways around the problems mm. that our bodies present in our environment. That said, I will offer that it may be the case, even a hundred years from now, when hopefully we haven't blown each other up, oh God, and hopefully the climate is not such that it becomes us unsustainable, oh God, here we are in the crisis we are, and there are many. It may be the case even then that simply being a person in her 40s is just, it's just going to be more difficult to give birth, right, than it would be earlier in life. That doesn't mean it's an unnatural thing to do. That doesn't mean it's the wrong thing to do. It just means that we better freaking figure out better ways of reducing female suffering so that it hurts less. Because um, I could have done without that hemorrhaging after my second baby. I am very glad to be alive because without modern medicine, I would be very deceased. Thank you very much. Uh, so I'm not, and that's awesome. And I hope that that will continue to be true and even mm. better for future people giving birth. Kat, you mentioned earlier skipping ahead your catechism and also skipping ahead school. I'm After reading your book and talking to you, I'm just kind of fascinated by you as a child. Were you this precocious kind of person or what were you like? And tell me, give me a little potted history of you as a kid and then as you as a young woman and how you got to be this person who wrote this incredible book. <laughs> That took you 10 years to write. <laughs> <laughs> well, the book took me 10 years to write because it required all the research that I did, which it was involving dozens of different scientific fields. And while I am uh, formally trained um, in part in uh, both literature and cognitive psychology, uh, in part because my father was a cognitive psychologist too. So I grew up in a lab. So I have a therapist and I'm doing fine, thank you. But I mean, it's... um. It's just a lot to cover, but it's also that I was doing my PhD at the exact same time. I did my quals exam and defended my prospectus um, at the exact same time, literally the same month as I got the book deal. And so I was running these things in parallel and they were not related, you see. Uh, it helped me for the brain chapter and the voice chapter, the research I did at Columbia, but otherwise I was climbing physiology mountain. So I had things to learn. Um, so that's why it took so long, but a potted history. Um, well, imagine me as I am now, but a bit more rude and um, a bit less concerned with the feelings of others <laughs> and uh, a bit more energetic because, you know, we're old now and I'm tired um, and uh, and a bit less convinced that the way that things had been done before could possibly have been the right way to do it. OK, now I've already uh, softened a bit. Yeah, as I uh, approach middle age, or maybe I'm in it. I don't know. I prefer to still say approach. I'm not sure when I'm going to be willing to make that shift and say now I am middle aged, you know, but I'm still resisting that. Thank you. Uh, because vanity and everything else. But, um, well, I can tell you that I actually got in a fight with an archbishop in public uh, when I was uh, 14. So that happened. Um, I went to Catholic school in the United States. Uh, I went to uh, to the Brebeuf Jesuit Preparatory Academy, which is a hell of a name for a high school, but that's where I went. And a new archbishop, the uh, Midwest Archbishop, I was in Indiana then, which was a very weird place for me. My family's from New York. Wasn't there my whole life. He came and did a kind of convocation at the school, um, and very stupidly, they decided to have an open mic where students could come and just ask questions in public, none of which were pre-screened, none of which were, you know, and this was all recorded uh, live. And so, of course, I'm standing in line and I am 14 
and I am just about to come out of the closet as a bisexual person, and I am feminist as hell, and I am unfiltered. And so I am literally tapping my foot in line, just waiting for my damn turn to talk to this guy, this poor priest, okay, this poor actual archbishop, all right? And I get up there, and I, um, well, you know, I don't call him names, but I am not polite. All right. I am not polite because no one has prepared me to be so. And I am the personality that I am. And I dig right in about women priests. And I dig right in about uh, queerity and homosexuality and how the hell, as an actually forcibly celibate person, he knows anything at all about sex or the right way to go about it. And I say this in public to an archbishop as a 14 year old, which no one is very happy about. And I can tell you that I didn't call him names and I didn't swear, very different from my adult self, okay? But it is also true that here I am in this school and there begins a letter-writing campaign to have me expelled and a counter-letter-writing campaign to make sure I don't get expelled. And this is my experience as a 14-year-old person that parents in my damn school are writing letters to the head of my school to either have me expelled or not have me expelled because of stuff I said to public to an archbishop. All right. So that's normal. That's a normal way to be in puberty. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. That actually explains a lot, I just want to say. (laughs) Right? I'm like, oh my God. And what happens is I end up in the principal's office of my school and there are some stern conversations to me. And I sit quietly and patiently and come to understand that I am now an activist. And I didn't know that about myself. I was just kind of a teenager. But in this moment, I must then become, because I have no choice, because simply having an opinion that you voice in public becomes a moment of resilience, becomes a moment of activism. And I don't get expelled, but primarily because so many parents wrote in to my damn principal, both in and out of the school, mind you, to make sure that I didn't. And I still don't know who those people were because it was all very anonymized. I was simply told that it had happened. And I was told by a very unhappy principal that he had decided that I could remain so long as I shut my damn mouth. And, um, Well, I never quite did, but they didn't kick me out. And you never have. And I hope you never do, because the last thing I want to just ask you about is the fact that your book has been translated into 23 languages. There's clearly a huge appetite for this. And you've written it, I have to say, in a really gripping, page-turning way. But what do you hope, what's your elevator pitch for the book? What do you hope that people are going to get from it? It could not be more important to study the biology of sex differences, not simply to improve the lives of cis women and girls everywhere, but to improve the medicine and lives of all people everywhere, of all sexes and all genders. Because again, if we don't know why the males are dropping like flies once they get older, because that's what it is to pass menopause ladies, still alive, that's actually the thing, still alive, all right, Um, then we're not actually treating their health the way that we possibly could, right? That that's going to be the future of gerontology. So we all need to care about this and keep our foot on the pedal and not assume that simply because we've had a few victories, that means that this battle is over. It is not. Not in the sciences and not in sexism. That's for sure. But the other thing I'll offer, just because you have listeners who are very real people who have bodies, that every one of you who are listening already have the best authority in the world on what it's been like for you to live in that body, 
you have that authority, you have that deep and sacred knowledge of what it has been to live in this crazy mammalian body that you have. What this book offers then is some new language, some new ways of describing it, some new stories to fit yourself into deep history, some new ways of having a conversation. And what I really hope is that it opens a door because whenever we talk about the body, it's intimate, it's awkward, it's hard to do, not just because of taboo, but because it's intimate. If I get to open that door, then they get to have those conversations, you see, that maybe they wouldn't have gotten to have before. And the more we talk about it, the better things will be. And I just want to commend you because there's so much of you and your humanity and your experience in there. But there also are a lot of very and a lot of things that make you laugh and go, what the <laughs> hell? And um, it's it's no surprise yeah. meeting you that you're the person who wrote this book because you are just fizzing with energy. I do think you could be a stand up comic as well as all the other all the other things that you do. <laughs> um, so thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. And uh, what are you doing next, actually, Kat? What's the is it going to take you 10 years to write the next one? Oh, God, no, no, no. I am going to make better life choices. Thank you. Not to say this wasn't, but you know what I mean. No, I'm going to be writing a book about um, wellness and health uh, for uh, people of all genders, but particularly people who identify as women and girls. So I'm going to be doing that next. But also specifically next, I'm going to go fold my children's laundry because I'm home and I need to go do that. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that you also have a partner who does folding laundry as well, that you share a bit of that. Oh, yes, I do. Thank you. I do. It's just that he gets to work today and I was on tour for a hot minute. And so I'm trying to pick up a little bit of the slack. I love I it. And as I said, absolute joy to talk to you and the best of luck with everything. I hope we can have you on again to talk about other things. It's just been really enjoyable. Yeah. Thanks. Would love to. Lovely to meet you. And thanks for having me on. That was Kat Bohannon there and her book is called Eve, How the Female Body Drove 200 Million Years of Human Evolution. And if you enjoyed this episode and the podcast, please leave us a review or subscribe to the podcast as it really makes a difference. The podcast is produced by Suzanne Brennan and by me, Roisin Ingle, with JJ Vernon on sound. Talk to us on social at IT Women's Podcast or email us on the Women's Podcast at irishtimes.com. That's it for me. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.